Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative this day. This is a beautiful Thursday, and we have on the phone with us Mr. Rodney North. Good morning, Rodney. Good morning, Vernon. Good to be talking to you again. It's a pleasure to have you on, buddy. I always enjoy our conversation talking about co-ops and how they benefit people. I understand that you are a consultant now in the Washington, D.C. area. Yep, helping co-ops or social enterprises who need help with either PR, marketing, or governance issues, you know, trying to figure out who's going to decide what and how and working out who's accountable to who. It's uh, not something a lot of people talk about, but it's something more organizations ought to be thinking about, especially new ones that are still trying to figure out, you know, not just, uh, you know, what's the good, the product or the service that they're selling, but trying to figure out who's going to own this thing who's going to be accountable, who's going to protect the mission. And so, yeah, I try to help people figure that out. Well, let me ask you this question real early on. Do you like what you're doing? I love what I've been doing. Wow. Uh, whether in the current role or uh, before that, when I was uh, a part of a work-around cooperative for a long time. And, and I know you know about that history. Mm-hmm. But why do you love what you're doing? Well, so like a lot of people, like yourself, you know, I came to co-ops a little bit later in life. And I'd had this idea that there's business, and that's about really serving yourself. And there's nonprofits where you're serving others or the community or the environment. Uh, it's other-oriented. And there's government, you know, which is we're familiar with what government does, and it's, it's a, an important form of public service. And I didn't understand that there was this fourth piece of the public, this piece of the community called cooperatives, which are – often working in the market, you know, as for-profit businesses. Not all of them are for-profit, but many of them are for-profit businesses. They're providing goods and services like electricity or banking services or groceries or the food you eat. But they have this other way of doing it where the people doing the work or the people who show up in the store, you know, the consumers, own the business. You and your listeners know about this all now you know these are the people by owning the business that they're involved with they're infusing some democracy and and i think a, a big dose of humanity into the business and so you know what's not to love about that wow thank you you said that so wonderfully well that if you're in a business it can be a for-profit business and normal for-profit business or capitalistic business that we know and i studied in the mba program it is What's the greatest return on investment uh, for the stockholder? So it's all about stock. Who puts in the money? That's who you're looking to benefit. Could be a little bit about how to benefit the employees, at least the employees that are higher up <laughs> on the food chain. 
So that's the the business model. And then there's another model of co-ops where it's owned, controlled, and when there is a profit, that profit is split up, dividends, patronage to the owners, and that's the individuals who own it, whether it's the employees or the um, consumer. All right, I'm getting excited in here. Tell me, I'm, I'm rocking the boat here. I'm moving around, shaking. <laughs> okay. I like the way you put that, Rodney. Thank you. So what are some of the kinds of things you're doing in D.C. now? To- well, so, um, as uh, you know, I grew up here, but then I moved away for 30 years, saw a lot of things, did a lot of things, and I came back a couple of years ago. And now one of the most interesting things that I'm a part of is this thing called the Cooperative Stakeholders Group, and it's a group that was convened by the city government, specifically uh, the DSLBD, Department of Small and Local Business Development, their Office of Innovation and Tech. And they're responsible for uh, many things. And, well, let me back up one step and say that the city government has a broad, uh, comprehensive economic development strategy, and there's many threads to it. And one thread is cooperative businesses. You know, what can be done to help facilitate co-op businesses? There's a recognition for some of these things that we've been talking about. There's a recognition that a co-op business isn't just like any other business. You know, if that grocery store on the corner is owned by the people in the neighborhood, there is going to be a lot of tangible and intangible benefits that, frankly, you're just not going to get with a Walmart or a Kroger or, you know, a uh, Safeway a giant. Box. Yeah, that either clearly or maybe doesn't have that same commitment to the community where the profits are going to go to Philly or Arkansas or New York or somewhere. So the city recognizes this potential for co-ops to be a good part of economic development. They've convened a number of stakeholder groups to tackle or to explore different topics. And one of the stakeholder groups is the one I'm a part of called Cooperative Stakeholders Group. And I got to give a shout out to uh, a great person, uh, Kate Marin Sinha. And I think I'm pronouncing her last name right. We just call her Kate. And she's at the um, DSLBD. And she uh, convenes these meetings. She facilitates them and keeps the conversation rolling along. So she's been running these meetings for the last six months. Altogether, about 65 uh, people or institutions have participated. And, you know, you can imagine where, okay, you want to do something with a certain community, but you're not sure where to start. And a good place to start is, okay, let's just get everybody into one room, you know, get to know each other, talk about our ideas, concerns, hurdles, like, oh, you're, you know, you're struggling with X. Well, you know, I've been struggling with that, too. You know, let's, what can we do about it? And then somebody across the table says, oh, well, I've been working on a solution, you know, my bank, my nonprofit, or my part of the city government. We've been working on that. So, you know, maybe together we can figure something out. Or maybe together we can solve things that we couldn't individually, which, of course, is a classic cooperative approach to problem solving and to meeting needs. So uh, we've now uh, met six times, and I've been impressed by the the variety of folks uh, that we've had. A lot of interest in worker cooperatives, also food co-ops, childcare, and uh, usually a worker-owned 
childcare business? Is it something that people are exploring, trying to get started? I know there's a, an effort to start one in Northwest. But you have folks, again, from the nonprofit sector, financial, people like City First have participated, different arms of the city government, groups like uh, My Brother's Keeper have been attending. And so, you know, I'm feeling good that out of this, something, you know, to be determined, uh, something is going to come out of it. Uh, you know, the co-op sector in D.C., I'd say in some ways kind of nascent. Uh, still, it's in formation. Got it, got uh, it. You said nascent. Yeah. Uh, so like like budding, uh, you know, there are other cities that have more robust cooperative communities like Philadelphia or you know, Madison, uh, Minneapolis, uh, where co-ops are a bigger part of daily life. And in D.C., it's a funny mix. We have headquarters for all kinds of important, large co-ops or co-op sectors. You know, the, the headquarters for the National Credit Union, National Rural Electric Co-op Association. I know you've interviewed them a number of times. Of course, the NTBA, National Co-op Business Association, and so on. So you have these, you know, large organizations that represent tens of millions of people potentially you know, billions and billions of dollars of uh, business activity, yet there aren't necessarily as many grassroots co-ops uh, in the city. The housing co-ops are one exception to that. But, you know, here are people trying to get together to see, okay, what more can we do? Can the city play a constructive role? Or just, by again, by getting people together uh, who, who share an interest, uh, can we help one another and get the ball rolling in a, in, a, in a bigger, more exciting way. So you all have met six times. What's going to happen now? Well, that was interesting. So the city, to their credit, when they started this last December for these different stakeholder groups, they said, we're going to hold these meetings, at least six of them, no matter, like if nobody shows up, we're going to, you know, we're going to have a meeting six times. Now, if people do show up and there's some enthusiasm, you know, we'll reevaluate. And so at our sixth meeting, it was clear, you know, there is interest, there's public interest in this, there's enthusiasm. So we're going to keep meeting and keep working on this. We have a mission team because we, okay, we're getting together. We need to articulate what specifically are we trying to do. Uh, so we're getting closer to articulating a mission. We have an events team because you know, we don't want just to be talking to each other, though that's great. We also want to be reaching out to, it could be entrepreneurs to introduce the co-op model. Um, it could be um, to talk to, well, for example, uh, you know, uh, coming up in whatever, a few weeks, on June 26th, I'm going to be leading a workshop, and you're a part of it, which I really appreciate, called How Co-ops Strengthen Neighborhoods. And that'll be a it's hosted by The Hive, which is physically at the Anacostia Arts Center. And this will be a Monday evening at 6 o'clock, June 26th. And so that is the kind of event, or it's one of the kind of events that we'd like to do, uh, to introduce the co-op model uh, to whoever is interested. And other times it might be more focused. So I could imagine an event where we're trying to reach out to retiring business owners. Well, well, and introducing Ronnie, Ronnie yep, let, me, yep. let me stop you here for a minute. I just 
I want to go back. You went over this event that's happening on June the 26th very quickly, and I want to make sure everybody heard that out there. Um, sure. And then we'll take a break. But on June the 26th, you're having a meeting at the ARC in South East D.C. Yep. Okay. And that's going yeah, to be that's, at that's, what time again? It's at 6 o'clock, scheduled to run until 7.30. And the host is a group called The Hive, and they're at the ARC. H-I-V-E, Hive? Correct, like a beehive. Okay. Yeah, they, they, they host a number of interesting workshops and will be the first for their summer series. And that's at uh, 1231 Good Hope Road, Southeast. So 1231 Good Hope Road on June the 26th from 6 to 7.30 and talking about the benefits of how, co-ops? Or? Yeah, how co-ops strengthen neighborhoods. And you know, we'll cover all the varieties of, of co-ops that might matter. It could be worker co-ops, housing co-ops, uh, which you know we'll, best. We'll come back and uh, talk about the different types of co-ops, but we have to take our first break right great. now. We'll be right great. back. Thank you, Rodney. DC's News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we have Mr. Rodney North on line with us this morning. Rodney is a consultant for co-ops and, and social responsible businesses to talk about the benefits. And right before we took break, we were talking about an event that's coming up on June the 26th. Uh, that is a Monday evening from 6 p.m. to 7.30 at the Arc. That's 1231 Good Hope Road, How Co-ops Strengthens Communities. But we were talking about the different types of co-ops. So, Rodney, let me give my definition I've created since I've been on the program. Co-ops, main, uh, most of the co-ops from, um, come in four variations one is is owned and controlled, democratically owned and controlled by the employees. It's called a worker cooperative. Therefore, any business you can think about could be a co-op. The IBM could be a co-op or any business you can think of. So then the second type, if, if it's owned and controlled by the consumers, the people that buy the products and services, then it's called a consumer cooperative. And we have food co-ops, we have housing co-ops, we have credit unions that fall in that. And in Madison, Wisconsin, there is a health clinic that's owned and controlled by the patients. It's a patient-centric cooperative. That's the rules, the policies for the business. So those are the two main type. And then there's the two on both ends of a business. That is buying co-ops. Farmers get together and create purchasing co-ops. Artists get together and they do the same thing. They can purchase equipment or they purchase supplies that they need to produce the products that they will develop. And on the other end of it, you can have marketing co-ops. And Cabot Creamery is a marketing co-op. Land Lakes is where, in this case, farmers get together and they take their products to the marketing co-op, and the marketing co-op has the expertise to develop new markets, more markets and pricing with the idea of getting the better price and they can sell all of their goods. So is that pretty good summary, Rodney? That, that is, and I think there's actually some exciting uh, manifestations or exciting examples that may not jump out uh, with that list, 
So going back to consumer co-ops, I think about the, the type of co-op sector that probably reaches, well, the second greatest number of Americans would be your rural electric co-ops, who I believe are reaching about 40 million Americans. If you were to measure the country in terms of mileage, you know, sort of a surface area, 75% of the country is served by rural electric co-ops. These are mostly the rural areas. So, you know, that's a, a huge co-op sector. There's also a well-known consumer co-op that a lot of people don't realize it called REI, you know, the, the outdoor equipment people. So that's a consumer co-op. And then you have all these, well, and by the way, when you're thinking about some of those marketing co-ops, most of which are in ag, you know, uh, Ocean Spray, Sunkist, uh, Blue Diamond, uh, Organic Valley, and those are all examples there. And then you can imagine in those co-ops where their farmers are getting together not only you know to, to sell their, their milk and their cheese, but also to buy feed, to buy supplies. So the, the way the co-op helps the farmers can be manifold. And then you have all these businesses, like smaller independent businesses that have come together. And you think about, I know you've interviewed Gina Schaefer uh, from Ace Hardware, you know, where the mom and pop businesses are getting together and, you know, a thousand of those local businesses can get together to buy wheelbarrows and grass seed and gloves, you know, whatever you sell at a hardware store. So they, they have group purchasing power as well as they're getting together with their marketing. So they can market under one name like Ace or True Value or Flooring America or, or Best Western. So, you know, these are independent hotels and motels, but they collaborate under one brand and, you know, helps them to compete against Hilton and Marriott and stuff like that. Or really exciting co-ops like uh, the Associated Press. You know, that, that's not what people usually think of when they think of co-op. And, you know, there's been a lot of concern about what's the nature of media. Uh, is media becoming too consolidated? You know, one person or one company owning too many uh, media outlets. And a, a really exciting part of that scene is the Associated Press. So there, the members, you know, the Washington Times, the Washington Examiner, your local TV station, the television networks, and together they are pooling resources. And uh, maybe nobody has, you know, a, a bureau chief in Zimbabwe, but AP may have that. And then, you know, that person can provide information that's available to all members of the Associated Press. So there's even more examples out there than is often realized. Wow. I mean, you just told me of a couple that I did not. I had heard about Associated Press, but I did not know it as well as you just talked about it. Okay. So you got all of these people coming together to benefit each other, to work together. And that's one of the reasons I like co-ops. And uh, when you look at the principles that co-ops are open to everybody, anybody, it doesn't make any difference about gender or race or social economic background or religion or politics. People come together. It seems like there's something common about this throughout the world is that helping the family, that everybody wants to help the, their own individual families to prosper and prosper meaning in some cases to have food. Uh, there was one story 
I think it was Papa Sin from Senegal. It was somebody from NCBA Clusa who said that their the farmer who had joined the co-op had said the benefit was that they had food for the whole year. And they, at the end of the year, they had some savings. Now, they said it a little bit differently, but that's what it meant. Um, where before the co-op, you know, they did not have food for the whole year, and there was no such, no such thing as savings. Yeah, it's, it's a classic story that often, you know, what, what I need or my family needs is also what you need and your family needs and what our neighborhood needs. And, you know, divided we fall, united we stand, or maybe it's said the other way around. And, yeah, that we can do stuff together. Uh, and often we can do it better, we can do it more efficiently than we can by ourselves. You know, for years, I was part of the Equal Exchange Worker Co-op, and we worked with dozens of small-scale farmer co-ops around the world. And, it have, you know, these are farmers who have anywhere from, you know, one acre to 20 acres, you know, but in, in they're in poor countries like Peru and uh, Burkina Faso. And individually, they can't buy a truck or build a warehouse or, you know, have a sales manager to export their cocoa or their coffee. But together, a hundred of them can pool their money, buy an old truck, you know, buy an old computer so they can start trying to do uh, some uh, trading. They can communicate with the capital city. They can communicate with the outside world. And then they just keep coming together. And by the end, we were working with some co-ops who had tens of thousands of members, especially in East Africa. And there was just no way they were going to have the same kind of success just working on their own. We also hear a lot about India. That In India, there's a lot of huge co-ops where people are working together for the benefit of each other. Which is Yeah, I, I have to tell you this, this quick story. So I was speaking on a panel at the International Co-op Summit summit in Quebec City in 2014, and the, the other three gentlemen on the uh, panel were from Singapore, I think France, Belgium, and India, and uh, the Indian gentleman, I forget his name, but uh, he is the executive director of the Amal Co-op, which is one of the world's largest cooperatives. It serves over a million members. These are dairy farmers, some of whom have a cow, a single cow, or maybe more, and Together, they were doing something like $4 billion in business annually. And it was all made up of these very small-scale farmers. But, again, just through persistence and, and collaboration, they just kept building this co-op. I think maybe it went back to shortly after World War II. And they, now they are you know, by far the dominant dairy provider, dairy business in India. And if each individual farmer where they have one cow or 10 or 20 uh, could not do this on their own. And they no, you, be... can't, you can't set up the refrigeration systems. You know, you need something called a cold chain where you can keep the milk refrigerated, you know, uh, from the time it's picked up from the farm all the way to the, uh, to the refrigerator in the grocery store. And that's a lot of money. That's a lot of capital. And, and of course, a lot of coordination, especially when, you're coordinating a million dairy farmers um, over a whole country. Yeah, that's not something you're going to do by yourself. But to get back to, to bring it back home to D.C., it's the same kind of problem where, I mean, you've seen it with affordable housing. You know, a single low-income family can't uh, by themselves, you know, 
buy their one apartment in a big apartment complex. But when all the families are going together, if there's like a supportive policy environment from the city government and so on, if maybe there's access to, you know, co-op friendly financing from it could be a bank like City First or uh, getting financial support from somebody like Wakef. Or National yeah, Co-op Bank. National Co-op Bank. National, yeah, of course. National <laughs> okay. Co-op Bank. We, got, uh, we have to okay. take our second break. I'm sorry. Sure. I'm sorry to cut you off because I get so okay. engrossed in the conversation, I forget about breaks. Okay. We're going to take our second break, and then we'll be right back, and we'll talk about the low-income housing and how people come together to benefit each other where they couldn't do it by themselves. We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, 95.9 All right, we have Rodney North on the phone with us this morning. I'm Vernon Oaks on Everything Cooperative. If you have any questions or comments, you can call in at 1-800-450-7876. 1-800-450-7876. And, Rodney, before we continue the conversation about low-income housing in the district, uh, if somebody wanted to reach you to talk about the this, pro- this program coming up on June the 26th that's going to be at the ARC in Southeast, how co-ops strengthen communities. How could they get a hold of you? I'd recommend that they just they can email me okay. at uh, rsterlingnorth at gmail.com. That's a S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, North. And um, also, um, they can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my Twitter handle is at Rodney Fairtrade. Uh, they can try that or I think if you Google me on or if you search for me on Twitter, Rodney North, uh, I show up. So that's R Sterling, R S T E R L I N G North at gmail.com. Correct. Okay. How Co op strengthens communities on June 26, 6 p.m. to 7 30 at the ARC, 1231 Good Hope Road, D.C. Yeah, Southeast. Southeast. Fantastic. So we were talking before the break about how people can come together. You were talking about a mall, $4, million, $4 billion, 100 million members in India come together to benefit themselves where they could not do it by themselves, and you went switched to low-income housing in the district. One family couldn't do it, but by coming together, they could. Yeah. You want to finish that conversation? Yeah. And so you know, this is, of course – the lack of affordable housing is a chronic problem around the country and lots of ways to pursue solutions. And, you know, I'm not one to say that a co-op is always the solution or it's always the best solution, but it often is. And I think it's more often the solution than is actually pursued for a variety of reasons. People aren't aware of the co-op option or the local governments aren't always a sort of supportive, often sort of the, the infrastructure around entrepreneurship isn't always conducive to co-ops. I know that back at Equal Exchange, for example, in the 80s and even through the 90s, we'd be trying to do something, and you go to lawyers, accountants, 
And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know how you do that. So often the service providers or the quote experts aren't familiar with the co-op model. And therefore, you just sort of get a bunch of blank stares instead of getting the support that you need. Or bankers are hesitant because they're not sure how this works. Like, Wait a minute, who really owns it? Like, who do I go to if I want to call this loan? So those kinds of obstacles you know, constrain the growth of co-ops, you know, keep the, the number and the size of co-ops to be less than it could be. And that's one of the things we're trying to address with the co-op stakeholders group is raise the awareness for the co-op model to increase uh, public support, business support, to increase sort of the, the city government's familiarity of the co-op model um, so that they can do even more to sort of make it easier for co-ops to start up, easier for co-ops to grow, or simply easier for co-ops to hang in there and uh, keep on doing what they're doing. I got a bit off track there, sorry. Mm -hmm. We were talking about uh, affordable housing. And so in the United States, the two cities that have done the most with co-op housing are New York City and uh, Washington. And I'd actually put the ball back in your court, Vernon, because you know that the history and sort of the, the, the housing co-op uh, community in D.C. better than I do, you know, what would you say about, you know, to what extent is it helping to provide affordable housing and, you know, what more might be possible? Well, Anita Barnes, who's the uh, on the city council, had a hearing not too long ago about how to enhance the experience of the limited equity co-op, the affordable housing co-op. Because what's happening in the district right now with gentrification and the price of housing goes up, 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 the price of the land goes up, 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 so that you have developers, sometimes it could be board members, sometimes it could be management, will come in and try to take over this property so that they can sell it and may perhaps tear it down and build something else or make it not a limited equity co-op anymore so they can get higher rents and make money. So too often the money... Is the greed again, which causes the low-income housing to to go away. To, and so she had a hearing to figure out how to do that. But sometimes the limited equity co-ops don't have enough monies to pay for a management firm, particularly if it's four mm -hmm. units, 10 units, 20 units. And so one of the things I've been thinking about doing, Rodney, is how to provide services, and I call it like, group management or shared management in a way that they could get the benefits of a third-party management company and not have the management company with all of the responsibility. Because to manage a four-unit, it's a lot of the same as managing a 40-unit, or in some ways it could be less managing, less time managing a 400-unit property. So mm -hmm. the, the, the economies of scale that are not there for smaller cooperatives that are designed to have affordable housing. So they don't get the management, they don't get the skills that they need, the experience, the skill that they need because they can't afford it. And too often if, when it's for a unit, if you get one person that doesn't pay, it's not financially viable. <laughs> That's no. another problem. Okay. So there's a lot of inherent issues and problems with maintaining affordable housing. The draw to get people in that want to make money on these units to try to get people to move out by giving them ten, twenty thousand dollars to move and mm -hmm. they'll make fifty, hundred thousand dollars on whatever they renovate 
Uh, so it's still in the best interest of that developer from a financial standpoint, but it's not in the best interest of the community when that, that affordable housing goes away. So she, Anita sure. Barnes, and, and I take my head off to her, had a hearing to try to figure out how to enhance. Now, I've also managed some co-ops, uh, one in Virginia particularly, the 250-unit co-op that the governance was awful. And I've, I've managed a couple here and I, in D.C. that's the same thing. If you don't have good governance, they don't work. And if you have the, sure. the board that is either trying to get favors for themselves or for their family members or their friends so they'll have more power, it's either money or power or both, that sometimes the board members will try to get. And with that power, they're not doing things according to bylaws, that they're not having right. integrity. And, and therefore, those kind of, properties go under oh, eventually. Well, what I was going to say there was that it's a funny thing where so governance, a lot of it is about rules rules, bylaws, um, procedures, and sticking to the rules. But I think parallel with that has to be culture, you know, that there's a culture of integrity mm-hmm. and a sort of an emotional commitment to the long-term health of the cooperative, a real one-for-all, all-for-one mentality. Because if you don't have that, all the rules in the world won't do you much good. You know, if people don't show up uh, for meetings, board meetings, if they're not keeping an eye on the board, you know, the rules may not be followed. You know, shenanigans can happen. People can give in to temptation. And so I think the two got to go hand in hand, you know, a good, solid, reasonable set of rules. And then also a healthy culture where people know what they got, why it's special, why they should get involved or why they should pay attention. So I had a question about these really small housing co-ops. Well, before you yeah, ask, which, let me, let me, let me yeah, comment yeah. on that, what you just said first, and then we'll get to your question. What I have noticed is that when you have that culture and you have that governance and, mm-hmm. and then you have management, whether the management is what sometimes is called self-management or if they have a third party, when you have that, it works so beautiful. It, it, it is yeah. sort of a marvel to watch how people with little means little amount of money, perhaps a little education, can create a very wonderful business. Uh, And it works extremely well. I mean, grass gets cut, flowers get planted, folks' units are painted or fixed up. They have Bills are paid. Bills are paid and on time. Okay. So it works extremely well. Of course, the opposite of what we talked about, start talking about first, but I've seen more co-ops in the district that work extremely well and I have seen the ones that fail. When they do fail, they, they stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. And uh, around here, HUD, when the D.C. office and the Richmond office and the Baltimore offices who I had worked with, they don't like co-ops. Mm. And what I got from the reason they don't like them, even though I try to talk about the ones that I look at how successful they are, they stay focused on the ones that are not successful because it takes a lot of their time. Because what the co-op members have learned to do is come together and be political. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it, even if they're not doing things well, they will try to blame HUD or somebody else and anybody else. Management, they blame first and then HUD second or whomever and before they'll take the ownership of the issues that they've had. So HUD will spend a lot of time, HUD field staff would spend a lot of time with those units that don't work. And they don't know how to handle groups of people they're they're normally ha- handling individual 
owners, you know, shareholders who own a building, and if they don't do right, they just kick them out, you know, and right. take the property or whatever. And with co-ops, it's a lot different. It gets to be extremely political. So for around here, sure. the the HUD did not like housing co-ops, even well, though they're very uh, successful. Even though I'm a real advocate and sort of cheerleader for co-ops, I, I do remind people that they are human institutions. You know, humans by nature are varied and flawed, and sometimes, you know, we give in to temptation. So cooperators, they're still people, so they're not perfect or always uh, angels. I think the system really encourages, as Lincoln would say, our better angels, our better selves. And that, yeah, some co-ops, they struggle either for, you know, there's self-dealing or there's bad management. But every kind of enterprise, you have nonprofits. Some of them are badly managed or they're self-dealing. There was a story out of the United Way in Nebraska where, you know, real shenanigans going on with the CEO stuffing his pocket. Uh, so you have a nonprofit. You have it in the business sector, businesses that are badly run and certainly that cut moral corners. But I think that if you were to take a survey of all the different sectors, that co-ops consistently deliver, you could say, better human performance better delivery of services to the members, to the community, lower a, a lower frequency of um, bad practices, because I think the practice tends to bring out the best in people and to actively discourage, you know, um, yeah, selfish. That's when you have so, that culture, yeah. And as you and I talked about in other shows, there are seven underlying principles to co-ops, and one is education. So the, you know, this whole cooperative model just doesn't automatically work from day one. It requires education of the members. As I was saying before, what is it that they have? How does it work? How do they exercise their rights? What are their responsibilities to the cooperative? And that those co-ops that invest in that education tend to get better results, You know, more engaged members, more loyalty, a better business performance. But it takes an investment, and not all co-ops either are farsighted enough to make that investment uh, or maybe they're so living hand-to-mouth they don't make the investment. But if somehow they can, it'll pay good dividends. Ronnie, we got to take our third and final break. Okay. Um, And we'll come back and talk about the principles. And you had a question about limited equity co-ops. We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL, and 95.9 FM. Information is power. That's why WOL is a great partner because the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about cooperatives, the benefits of cooperatives, how you can learn about them, perhaps start your own or Go to REI. It's a new business, and they have an office here in the or a store here in the district. Um, and with this information, if you use it, that's where the power comes. And Rodney North is uh, our guest today, who's given us a lot of information. And Rodney, we were talking about the principles, and you had a question about limited equity co-ops before we took break. Yeah. So you were explaining how there are these very small limited equity housing co-ops, four members, six members, ten. 
and that the math doesn't work so well. And it's hard for them to engage the management services like you provide. We saw something like this at Equal Exchange where, again, farmers, even you know, five, ten together, still couldn't uh, do some of the things that they needed to do. Uh, so imagine, you know, so that they could sort of get out of their bind, they ne- needed to build a warehouse. They needed facilities to process their crop. And so maybe this little co-op in one village would get together with other co-ops in other small villages nearby. And so they could form you know, what we call a secondary co-op, you know, little co-ops coming together. Uh, could you imagine a situation where, let's say, 10 of these small housing co-ops, that together they could pool what they have to engage in you know, a property management service to do some of the things that they need? Well, there were several co-ops on one street, and I was managing, let's say, five of the seven of them. And I tried to approach that subject with, this was really early on 20 years ago in my in the management. And so I approached that subject then about them sort of, I didn't think of forming uh, a legal entity where they would all come into this co-op and then they could easier do it. And I was trying to figure out how they had representation from each co-op on their board or whatever. It wasn't, I did talk about it legally. But I never, I could not get that done in enough time. And so I, I think it would be great. And that's what I have been thinking about now is how to either get something like that or get 10 of them to be on one contract and have shared management. I was trying to think of what they could do with the computer. They could probably pay their bills and we do the reporting perhaps or mm-hmm. we do the collecting well, of the money and reporting. So there might be ways that we could share it. Well, I was thinking of the Community Purchasing Alliance, and I believe, uh, was it uh, Paul Hazen that you interviewed about mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. So uh, for listeners who hadn't heard about heard that episode, uh, over 100 churches and schools in the, the city uh, or the Washington, D.C. area have gotten together to do things like buy electricity or to buy waste uh, haulage services, landscaping services, photocopier services, all together uh, Community Purchasing Alliance uh, is now providing over eight uh, such services. And so if churches, large and small, can get together, I was wondering if in the same model, these small housing co-ops, especially if you get to a critical mass, maybe it's not 10. Maybe you need to get 20 or more together where they could buy management services or, or whatever it is that they need most. Well, it could be management service, electricity, trash hauling, all of the things you just mentioned. And also yeah. I like uh, Community Purchasing Alliance is uh, the the um, the panels, the solar panels. They have a, yeah. a process yeah. for doing and, that. And too. by the way, people can check them out at cpa.coop. I bought my copier machine with them, and what I really liked, and I got a firsthand experience on their purchasing, is they had already vetted the the contract. Sure, but the, when the when the salesman was talking to me, he gave me the original contract, and I went down and I'm going, no, I don't like this, and I don't like that. And he kept saying, well, this isn't in your contract because you're coming through CPA. They and this, I said, well, give me the contract that CPA has already vetted, <laughs> okay, so we don't have to go through this, right? And that was really good. You, you have somebody that's an expert in this area, so I don't have to be the expert 
and I got right. a, a very decent price and an excellent copier. Uh, we've had it two or three years now. So um, CPA and the Purchasing Alliance, Alliance can really, really be helpful in this, this whole purchasing cooperative. Okay. Yeah, and, and, that, and that model. Uh, and by the way, I, it, my impression is it's one of, in terms of fast-growing co-ops in a D.C. area, uh, they may be our, our best example. They just hired two new people. Yeah, and I remember when there was only one. So okay, yeah. maybe up to five now. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, cool. and they they already have their eye on looking at replicating the model in other communities. So that would be very exciting, especially because they've taken you know some of the things that we've talked about: food co-ops, housing co-ops, credit unions have been around some of them over a hundred years. And what CPA is doing right now, to me, feels really innovative. Both you know bringing together. You know, uh, like churches working together in this way on a business uh, need, uh, that seems new. And, you know, they're, they're driving down prices. So I should say driving down the cost for the churches, the schools, um, and then also making it easier for these organizations to do the right thing. You know, one school may want to put on solar panels. They don't really have the management bandwidth to tackle it. And CBA takes care of a lot of that and hey, if we can get 10 schools together, which is something they've done recently, you know, we can give you this really great price, put solar panels on your roofs. You're going to get green energy. You're doing the right thing. The, the, the families at the school, the faculty will love it. The environment will love it. And you're going to lower your bills. So what's not to love? And with no out-of-pocket expense. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, and again, so just you could, one school probably could not have pulled that off. Rodney, we've talked about Cooperative Shareholders Group, but can you tell us about the D.C. Anchor Partnership? What's that all about? Yeah, so this is a, something new. Now, I believe that on your show you've talked to people about what was done in Cleveland where anchor institutions, so these are institutions that aren't, by their very definition, they're not going to go anywhere. Your local hospitals, schools are the best examples. Um, unlike a business, they're not going to up and move. And they often handle billions of dollars in activity because they, they need a lot of stuff. They buy a lot of stuff. And the idea was, hey, could we, could we, the community, direct the purchasing power of these anchor institutions to drive a certain end? Now, in Cleveland, the idea was, okay, they wanted to support work around new work around cooperatives, specifically around uh, locally grown uh, food through hydroponics and greenhouses. Things like solar energy installation and laundry. Uh, hospitals, of course, you know, got a huge amount of laundry. And eventually, they were able to, to direct the purchasing power of a number of these institutions towards these co-ops to help them get up off, up off the ground and to keep them going. Now, other cities like Chicago and Baltimore have also pursued sort of a conscientious anchor program, but not always with co-ops in mind. So, for example, Baltimore seems to have a successful anchor program, but co-ops, there's not a, a co-op element to it. And in D.C., an arm of the D.C. government and a local group, I forget the acronym, um, that works on affordable housing, the city and this group are working together. They're looking at the Chicago, Cleveland, Baltimore examples, coming up with their own version for the city. And, you know, something that I would like to see is that in one way or another, co-ops 
be a part of that anchor plan. You know, so, so here's a bit of an example. So with CPA, they do landscaping services and other services, and one of their vendors is a worker cooperative called Tight Shift, which is mostly composed of uh, returning citizens. And so it'd be nice if, you know. When you say returning, you're talking about incarcerated folks that have been yeah. in jail come back. And they yeah, can get a so, job on with Tech Shift. Yeah. And so you can imagine if D.C.'s anchor institutions, you know, Howard and Georgetown and hospitals, whatever, if they could make a point of not just always going for the lowest bidder, but trying to direct some of their their spending to support you know, new worker cooperatives uh, like Tight Shift. So it's, it's, it's just adding another sort of layer of thought to your budget and thinking about, oh, if I spend my money over here, there's all these ripple effects about mm-hmm. supporting local businesses and maybe a certain kind of local business like a co-op or a worker co-op. Well, I like the book Cities Building Wealth uh, by Democracy Collaborative, who's also the group that helped the Cleveland group get started. They were provided technical support. But we right. only have another and minute. That, <laughs> yeah, and by the way, DC, sorry, Democracy Collaborative is headquartered right here in the city. I thought they were at the University of Maryland. Uh, well, the, I'm pretty sure their offices uh, are now in the Northwest. Okay. Because I went, I went to a party they had. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Well, let's give people your email address again, please, and sure. your last word, because we only have a minute. Yeah, so it's the letter R, R Sterling North at Gmail, and that's Sterling spelled S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G. And my last word is just we got some stuff, some good things happening with co-ops in the city. I'd say the energy is especially around worker cooperatives um, and to some extent, um, sorry, uh, uh, food co-ops. Um okay. I'd like to get the housing co-ops more part of this conversation because there's so many people there, and, and, and we gotta go. they have real needs. we got to go. Thank you, Rodney. It's a pleasure. Okay. Thank you, Vernon. We could use another hour. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week and live cooperatively. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL, and 95.9 FM.